sponsored in part by Eli Lilly and Company. Do you think you might have migraine? Talk to your healthcare professional about your symptoms, the number of days they impact your life, and which treatment options might be best for you. Learn more at thinkmigraine.com and the American Brain Foundation. For over 30 years, the foundation has worked with researchers to discover better treatment, prevention, and cures for brain diseases and disorders. Imagine life without brain disease. Learn more at AmericanBrainFoundation.org. Rethreaded offers hope and a fresh start to survivors of human trafficking right here in Jacksonville. None of us should be defined by the worst things that happen to us. Learn more about how you can unlock the potential of survivors at Rethreaded.com. And by Norellis, a leading neuroscience company focused on the development and commercialization of therapeutics for the treatment of epilepsy and other neurologic disorders. The company's unique drug portfolios strive to address unmet needs in patient care. Learn more at Norellis.com. Hi, I'm Dr. Joe Servan, a practicing neurologist and professor of healthcare science. This is what's health got to do with it, which looks at where and how healthcare intersects with your life, hoping you get the medical answers you want. Happy holidays! Coming up, a conversation with Dr. Stephen Ferrara, president of the American Association of Nurse Practitioners. Then, how to manage mental health and stress during this busy holiday season. But first, one of the major changes in healthcare post-COVID has been a dramatic increase in the number of providers other than doctors. One of those provider types are nurse practitioners. Chances are that if you're listening to this show, you've been cared for by a nurse practitioner already. Earlier this month, we celebrated National Nurse Practitioners Week. Now, a nurse practitioner is an advanced practice registered nurse whose training and degree allows them to provide diagnostic and advanced care for a variety of conditions without the direct supervision of a doctor. There are 355,000 licensed nurse practitioners in the United States, and it's growing. And for 13 million Americans living in primary health care deserts, a nurse practitioner is their frontline health care provider. National Nurse Practitioners Week honors not only the sacrifices and contributions nurses make, but draws attention to the expertise of this highly specialized profession. Just like other health care providers like physicians and pharmacists, there is a projected shortfall of 450,000 nurses by 2025, or 20% fewer than the nursing workforce requires. Joining us now is Dr. Stephen Ferrara. He's president of the American Association of Nurse Practitioners to address this concern and the vital role nurse practitioners play in providing primary health care needs, especially in underserved health care communities. He holds a doctor of nursing practice, the highest degree in nursing. He's also a member of the senior leadership team at New York's Columbia University School of Nursing, serving as the associate dean of clinical affairs and an assistant professor. His role includes overseeing the nurse practitioner primary care faculty practice and teaches healthcare policy in the doctor of nursing practice program. Stephen, welcome to our show. Uh, thank you so much for having me today. I know I also want to add uh, joining us as well is going to be Kelly Rojas. She is a first-year uh, nurse practitioner student. Uh, Kelly, welcome as well. Thank you so much. Stephen holds a doctor of nursing practice. That's the highest degree in nursing, and he is with the senior leadership team at the New York's Columbia University School of Nursing at uh, Columbia and an associate dean of clinical affairs there. Stephen, I was wondering, you know, one of the things that everyone can point out to uh, these days is that there has been an explosion of the number of nurse practitioners uh, in the U.S. Can you elaborate on that growth of the nurse practitioner profession and how it's expanding access uh, to primary care for everyone, really. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, you know, AANP just put out uh, the latest numbers of nurse practitioners, and that number is now 385,000 nurse practitioners across the U.S. Wow. And that represents an 8.5% increase from the numbers that were reported last year. So we're continuing to see uh, a significant growth in the nurse practitioner profession. And the, you know, one may ask why, um, and we believe it's because there's lots of opportunities for nurse practitioners today. Uh, there are over 100 million Americans lacking access to primary care, and nurse practitioners are primarily prepared in primary care areas. So it's a, it's a good relationship with nurse practitioners going into primary care. Other specialties too, uh, such as mental health and, and even acute care, women's health, um, but there are lots of opportunities today for nurse practitioners, and I believe that's why we're seeing the growth. Help us understand uh, this part because, you know, I I am um, a neurologist at a busy uh, multi-specialty organization. We work mm-hmm. with nurse practitioners left and right. I love working with them. What sets a nurse practitioner apart from other nursing professionals because I think there's always confusion because Mm -hmm. the title nurse practitioner nurse is still there that it gets difficult to separate the registered nurse nursing nurse practitioner can you help us out with that sure so uh, nurse practitioners are first registered nurses and graduate from undergraduate uh, universities and are licensed as RNs first Uh, people who become nurse practitioners decide to go back to school at the master's and doctoral levels uh, and get additional education and preparation uh, in diagnosis, uh, treatment, management, and can prescribe medications uh, uh, in all 50 states across the U.S. So, you know, we, we focus on health promotion and uh, disease avoidance, and that's where the nursing part of the nurse practitioner comes in because we really try and thread that throughout all patient encounters. In what ways do the nurse practitioners really help to address the healthcare needs of underserved or rural populations? Um, Mm. Maybe you could share a success story of of where they really help fit in that piece of the kind of a key puzzle. Yeah, so nurse practitioners are uh, rising to the challenge to uh, provide accessible health care for patients who need it the most. Oftentimes, we're seeing nurse practitioners uh, set up practices in the communities that they came from themselves uh, so that they can provide care to the people in their communities, the people that they know, the people that they understand uh, lack uh, access otherwise. So the, these are some ways that you can find uh, nurse practitioners uh, providing that health care. And we know that patients have better outcomes. Uh, when we have a diversified workforce and uh, patients' outcomes are better and they feel better uh, when they are understood. And uh, we, we certainly want to encourage that, that trend to continue. We recently just celebrated National Nurse Practitioners Week. Can you tell us why is it essential that we recognize and, and appreciate the contributions of both nurses and nurse practitioners. Yeah, it's uh, those 385,000 nurse practitioners in the U.S. are responsible for over 1 billion patient visits each and every year. Let me, let me get that, 1 mil- billion with a B? 1 billion with, with a B, <laughs> 1 billion uh, patient visits annually. And there are millions of patients choosing to see nurse practitioners. So we represent a significant portion of the healthcare workforce uh, providing accessible, high-quality care. And uh, it's one of the reasons that uh, I find most rewarding uh, as a nurse practitioner myself uh, that I can you know, provide care in areas where there may not be access otherwise. Kelly, I know that you are uh, in the first year of nurse practitioner program. Uh, first of all, what made you want to become a nurse practitioner? Absolutely. So um, I am a first generation Latina woman and a personal experience that uh, my family and I went through um, is my family's lack of access to routine health care. 
So this is sort of where my drive to become a nurse practitioner came from. Um, I really, my goal as a nurse practitioner is to sort of form bridges between underrepresented uh, populations and equitable access to healthcare. Now, can you describe for us um, what your training is going to look like? Here? What what is what is a a, a first year nurse practitioner student? Uh, calendar look like what what are they uh, what are you doing yeah absolutely so i am in my very first semester um and it really consists of didactic courses and i just finished up a six-week clinical rotation at a nursing home where we really learned the fundamentals of assessment of geriatric patients so we're really starting off with the basics here and just trying to you know i have another course in pediatrics and really we know that family nurse practitioning is sort of taking care of all patients throughout the lifespan. So they really try to um, sort of hammer in all that education from pediatrics all the way to the geriatric population. Now, how many years uh, will it take before you are finished with this part and then you go out uh, to, to your practice? Sure. So I just started the semester. Um, the total program at Columbia University for a FNP is two and a half years. Um, So after two and a half years, I can choose to practice or I can also um, look for internship opportunities, which I am planning to do upon graduation. Now, this is uh, that two and a half years is in addition to what was the education that you had to get just to get to this first semester? Correct. So I actually also did... um, my bachelor's degree at Manhattan College in Riverdale in the Bronx, New York. And then I applied to Columbia's Accelerated Nursing Program, which was 15 months. And then I um, began the doctoral program at Columbia, which is two and a half years. So really, it's about about six years, a little more. Well, so so it's, a, it's a long time. Yes. Yes, it is. But I think what sort of pushes me forward through the amount of schooling that I've done is really just coming back to the reason why I'm doing it. And it's really just to try to make that difference and making sure that underrepresented populations really feel heard and seen um, as really members of our community. Uh, Stephen, when it comes to uh, nurse practitioner uh, education, um, Mm -hmm. especially in primary care, like is the exposure into just a lot of different types of practice? Uh, How does that work in terms of uh, what exposure uh, someone has while they are learning to, well, learning the craft, really? Yeah, so uh, nurse practitioner students will spend time in their specialty uh, uh, that they're going to school for. So uh, nurse practitioners have a family nurse practitioners, such as, as Kelly and myself. We're both family nurse practitioners. Uh, and see patients from uh, very early age to the elderly. But there are other specializations for nurse practitioners, such as psychiatric mental health, such as acute care, such as women's health. Um, and uh, those students will spend time in uh, a host of settings, uh, whether they be private practices, whether they be uh, hospital-based clinics, uh, to get their uh, competencies down so that they can be proficient when the time comes upon graduation so that they can pass their board national board exam and get licensed as a, as a nurse practitioner upon completion of all that schooling and training. And to all of our listeners out there, you're listening to What's Health Got to Do With It on WJCT News 89.9. I'm Dr. Joe Servan, and if you're just joining us, we're talking about nurse practitioners with the president of the National Association of Nurse Practitioners, and we want to hear from you. If you have an idea for future shows, tweet me at jservan. Stephen, what challenges do nurse practitioners face currently in their daily practice and 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 how do they overcome them yeah it's a great question and uh you know our health care system is increasingly complex yeah. uh and you know we face a lot of uh, challenges with uh, outdated laws uh and we find that um uh, laws need to be modernized to allow nurse practitioners uh to practice to the full capacity of our education and preparation um, that's one of the, the most uh, major issues that nurse practitioners have today. And then, you know, patients are increasingly complex. We're sicker as a nation. Yeah. Um, and we need to, you know, provide uh, care sometimes not as early as we want to. 
so you know, these are all the challenges that many clinicians face today. And um, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's why we do what we do so we can, we can help uh, make a difference. Let me get uh, into uh, that question uh, when you mentioned the law. The laws you're referring to talking about restrictions on mm-hmm. how much someone can practice or do? Yeah, that's correct. So there are uh, 27 states that allow nurse practitioners to have full practice authority, uh, which means that uh, the nurse practitioners in those states don't need a contract or any sort of agreement in order to practice uh, their profession. Um, In states that have these uh, uh, contracts and uh, agreements uh, as a mandatory step in place, we see that healthcare access is not as good as those in the states that have full practice authority. So, uh, you know, nurse practitioners are excited about the future of care, and we're looking forward to help uh, all stakeholders uh, to diversify uh, this this incredible workforce. Now, um, one of the things that is also a big uh point uh, that I think a lot of folks recognize is a good thing, especially when you're dealing with like complex conditions like cancer or things of that sort, mm-hmm. is the focus on team. So how do you see um, the nurse practitioner working with the physician, working with pharmacists? Because there's, we do this show, we've covered almost every aspect. And um, I wonder, like, how do you see the team, if you will, and 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 how the nurse practitioner, the, the, the BSN nurse, the pharmacist, mm-hmm. uh, working and structuring as, uh, as we look at uh, the, the rise, if you will, of uh, nurse practitioners? Yeah, it's a great question. And we know that uh, healthcare is a team sport. Um, we believe that you know, uh, healthcare providers have different roles on, on different teams based on the patient's condition. Uh, so there is a role for everyone on the team, uh, and you know it's it's so important to make sure that the team is communicating uh, with with each other, with the patient, with their family, um, and oftentimes you know uh, not just nurse practitioners, but especially nurse practitioners uh, are the ones that are helping to uh, ensure that uh, patients are getting the information they need, uh, helping to direct and coordinate patients, uh, patient care as best as they can. So, you know, nurse practitioners will continue uh, to uh, lead in teams and work in teams, and uh, our patients require that of us to do so. One question that um, that I get uh, from folks, and especially I, I told them that I was going to be doing this interview for, with a colleague, mm-hmm. And in and is the question of the other type of provider that um, we're not talking about today, which is physician assistants. And I guess mm-hmm. the question I have is a simple one. What's the difference between physician assistant and nurse practitioner? Because in some places they're act treated identically and in others, not so much. Uh, and I wonder if you could kind of help us out with that. Yeah, I I think what is important to understand is that nurse practitioners are registered nurses first, licensed as as registered nurses, uh, and then go on for this uh, additional education and preparation. Whereas physician assistants go to physician assistant school. Um, And you're right, uh, there are some uh, uh, practices that uh, nurse practitioners and physician assistants are doing the same thing. Um, But we want to uh, essentially focus, especially focus on nurse practitioners and the nursing model that we incorporate into advanced practice. And that nursing model is health promotion and wellness and disease avoidance. And uh, it's critical that we focus on these things. Uh, and you know that's where primary care uh, uh, fits in uh, so nicely with this. And we need to bring that wellness model uh, into our healthcare system. So agree with you. One of the things that has been going on on a national level, and we've covered this also uh, as well, has been there's been strikes, uh, mm. both physicians, uh, nurses, uh, and 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 they've been on both coasts. They've been in the Midwest, um, mm-hmm. and some of it is just working issues and and burnout. Can you comment about what? is the working environment for nurse practitioners, you know, as we see this going on, kind of the labor unrest that we've seen at least over the past few months, 
in healthcare, if you will. Yeah, so we certainly saw the pandemic uh, uh, and, and the aftermath of the pandemic uh, take a huge hit on the healthcare system uh, and the professions uh, uh, in and of themselves. So, you know, we're, we're seeing that um, uh, uh, people within the professions are uh, overworked and they haven't focused on self-care because our systems haven't uh, allowed us to do so. So we're seeing now uh, sort of a uh, reimagining of the healthcare system, right? We wanna make sure that um, in the healthcare system of tomorrow, uh, there is self-care that's, that's promoted. It's high stress. We're, we're, sure. we're often dealing with patients who are very sick uh, and you know, the, we ourselves are healthcare providers and that takes a toll on, on the professions itself. So you know, we, we understand self-care is important and uh, you know, we know that uh, there are a number of opportunities uh, for uh, people like Kelly here as a, as a nurse practitioner student at Columbia. Right. Um, and there's a, a, a wide open future that we believe uh, she will do very well in uh, because there'll be lots of opportunities. No, there's no question. What One other question is, did, are nurse practitioners unionized or is that like nursing? It just depends on the state and circumstances uh, surrounding uh, the system. Yeah, generally I'll say it's uh, system dependent. Um, but it's a uh, very few numbers of nurse practitioners are part of unions. Got it. Um, are there any specific legislative or policy changes that the uh, um, American Association of Nurse Practitioners is working on uh, at this time uh, in terms of uh, top priority items? Yeah, we're seeing uh, priorities at the federal level. Uh, one of the bipartisan pieces of legislation that exists in both the House and Senate uh, is the ICANN Act, which is improving care and access to nurses, uh, which would modernize a lot of outdated Medicare and Medicaid uh, laws that would allow nurse practitioners to do things such as uh, ordering uh, diabetic shoes for patients that have diabetes. Uh, uh, being able to certify a patient for hospice care, uh, which right now we're restricted to do. So um, that at the federal level is one of the main priorities that AANP is working on um, to, to, to overcome. Uh, Kelly, as a, as a Latina, and, and I'm a Latino myself, um, what, how do you, uh, is there some aspect that you hope to give back to that community uh, in your role as, well, as you hope, aspire to be a nurse practitioner in the not too distant future? Yeah, absolutely. Wonderful question. Um, I do think about that every day and sort of just how I can build upon my skills now it's early on in my education to sort of become um, very accommodating and continue to practice cultural humility. I think that's huge um, as a primary care provider, as a provider in general. So I think just going in with that mindset of um, maintaining maintaining that sort of open-mindedness and really hearing the patient and making them feel seen and present in the office and outside the office is very, very crucial. Um, and then just going back to your question really quickly about the cancer care. Yeah. Um, not too long ago, well, actually two years ago, and you're a neurologist, so I'm sure you'll know. <laughs> um, my uncle got diagnosed with glioblastoma. Oh, multiform, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And yeah, yeah uh, he passed uh, past June, this past June. And it, that was a little bit of a struggle for us in our family, because like I said, we, they weren't really used to uh, going to the doctor or getting a routine checkup because they were unable to. Um, so I sort of took it upon myself to become his primary caregiver. Um, and I really took this role very, very seriously. And I was able to sort of see the true health disparities in, um, in a population like our own. And I was able to sort of maneuver and tr really attempting to go through all these loopholes to try to get him the best care possible after his traditional care of chemo and radiation. And I was able to get him um, enrolled in a clinical trial. And he did very successful in it. But as you know, the prognosis was, yeah, uh, it's, yeah. it's very poor in that uh, type of cancer. But I mean, this is something that I feel an NP would do, right? It's like, look for those resources, look for those um, um, sort of access to, to healthcare and just try to provide our patients with the best possible care. And I feel um, very happy that I, I tried to, I did that for my family, even when it came to just translating, like translating yeah. medical terminology, right? Family to haven't had 
um, I guess, who, who have that lack of health literacy because they just don't have access to it. So just really being um, sort of that point person and trying to translate and, and meeting people where they are um, in, their, in their knowledge and their education and trying to sort of motivate people um, about, their, about their health. Kelly, and I'm sorry again uh, for your loss, but uh, but thank you for sharing that. Stephen, I, I, I want to ask you a, a question. You are now, uh, as president, I'm sure you're hearing stories from the 300,000 plus members of your organization. Is there any personal story or experiences that you want to share that kind of kind of give our listeners a sense of of what a nurse practitioner is going through and and how they can help uh, help that group, if you will. Sure. Uh, so you know, I, I've spoken to and continue to speak to a lot of nurse practitioners across the country, um, from those in their own private practices to those working in hospital systems. Uh, the ones I speak to that feel the most passionate about their work tend to be the ones owning their own practice, and they're very small practices. And these practices are the ones providing uh, essential access to healthcare. So there have been, uh, I'll use an example, uh, in upstate rural New York, uh, there were uh, a, a two nurse practitioner owned practice that were providing pediatric care to this community. Um, and they were just a, a, a very busy practice, uh, making sure that their patients were getting immunized and getting their annual physicals and their camp physicals. Um, and the work that they did is just so rewarding. Um, and, you know, oftentimes their patients felt like nobody else was there for them. Um, so they were incredibly proud of the work that they were doing. Um, they were incredibly uh, honored to be able to take care of, of patients. And uh, I, I find this story um, replicable across, across the U.S. because um, you know, nurse practitioners are there to lead and, and provide um, essential access to care. Stephen, one more question on the education side. Uh, mm. you, you obviously also get to see a lot of applicants. You get, you get fantastic students like uh, Kelly, uh, who, who wants mm. to make a difference and all. Um, I, I'm, I'm curious, just for our listeners out there, or maybe people are interested in becoming, how, I know medical school, and I've seen it for mm -hmm. PA school, and I've heard it for nursing school lately, that it's pretty competitive these days. Mm -hmm. can, you, can you comment on how, how competitive has it become uh, overall, or am I getting that wrong? Yeah, I would not say you're wrong. Um, it is increasingly competitive. Uh, there are you know, uh, uh, challenges with uh, faculty. There are challenges with uh, clinical placements. Uh, and there's the financial piece to it too. Uh, so uh, everybody's competing for limited number of spots uh, and you know, it can be challenging. So you know, what I would tell anyone uh, about wanting to become a nurse practitioner, uh, we have a website, wechoosenps.org. It explains a lot about the background of the profession uh, and is a good way for someone uh, to look further into the profession and even for patients to find a nurse practitioner uh, by putting in their zip code and uh, being able to choose a nurse practitioner for their care as well. I want to have you respond to uh, this scenario that I've watched and, and always kind of uh, uh, irks me a little bit, uh, even even as as a neurologist, which is I'll 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 be talking to uh, a patient and they will ask me, uh, like, I only want to talk to the doctor. I don't want to talk mm -hmm. to the nurse practitioner. We have, you have listeners on air now. What would you say <laughs> to help correct that perception, if you will, that comes across uh, from patients? Yeah, I think a lot of it comes from uh, not understanding what nurse practitioners are and what, we're, what we can do. Uh, and I would ask patients to give nurse practitioners uh, the opportunity to care for them. Uh, and in my career, which is over 20 years now, um, I've had the incredible fortune of having patients return to me uh, time after time, episodic visit after episodic visit, um, because they trust me as a healthcare provider. Um, nurses are, are the most trusted profession. Uh, uh, it, that's not unlike nurse practitioners that are you know, registered nurses first. Um, I think it's important 
that we are transparent in who we are as providers. Uh, I'm a nurse practitioner, and this is what I can do for you today. Um, at the end of the day, patients do have the choice, and we believe that's very important, uh, that if they don't want to see a nurse practitioner, they have uh, the, the option not to. Um, but there should be the opportunity for patients to choose a nurse practitioner uh, to provide uh, their care. In our final moment, I'm going to give you each a chance to respond in general. But what message, uh, Stephen, would you like to convey to the general public about nurse practitioners and their role uh, that you want to make sure people walk away after listening to this? Yeah, uh, thank a nurse practitioner. Thank the 385,000 nurse practitioners across the U.S., uh, and, uh, you know, we, we really thank you for uh, having us on today. Appreciate it. Kelly, any last words for us? Absolutely. Um, I just also want to say to think it is practitioner. Um, and if you're interested even remotely in any sort of healthcare setting or any healthcare occupation to really look into nursing and nurse practitioning because it is a wonderful, rewarding experience. And you really do feel like you make a difference in everyone's life that you um, interact with. I want to thank you both uh, so much uh, for joining us today. Happy holidays uh, to the both of you. Uh, and it's just been such a pleasure to have you uh, help us today understand the role of nurse practitioners. Uh, we really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for Thank having you. us. Enjoyed it. It's been a pleasure. We've been talking to uh, Stephen Ferrara. He is the president of the American Association of Nurse Practitioners and associate dean of academic affairs at Columbia University School of Nursing. And Kelly Rojas, a first year uh, nurse practitioner student at Columbia as well. Up next, mental health and navigating the holidays. And we'll be right back. Welcome back. This is What's Health Got to Do With It. I'm Dr. Joe Servin. You know, I love the holidays, but let's face it. Holidays, they're stressful. If you're like me, you can list certain holiday memories that are not that happy or joyful. Family, friends, gifts, overeating, parties, work, finances and alcohol, all make for a tricky period of time. For some, it's about loneliness. So how do we preserve our mental health during this happiest, putting that in air quotes now, time of the year? Joining us to help us navigate the holidays is Lindsay Bennett. She's a licensed clinical social worker and a qualified supervisor for registered clinical social worker interns. She earned the designation of certified master's level addiction professional. She's currently in private practice where she works with adults and specializes in complex post-traumatic stress disorder, addiction, anxiety disorders, mood disorders, and LGBTQIA issues. The therapeutic approaches most utilized in our work with clients are clinical hypnosis, attachment-based therapy, humanistic therapy, and relational therapy. But, Lindsay, I have to start off by saying Happy Thanksgiving. Oh, thank you, and same to you and your family. I appreciate that, and welcome to our program. It's so good to have you so here. So good to be here. Okay, let's dive right into it. I I kind of gave you a little bit of <laughs> maybe a little – in that intro, is a little bit self-biased. <laughs> I was talking about previous holidays yes. of past. So many people experience increased stress and anxiety. Um, what are those – common triggers and, and how can people recognize them? Oh, sure. I think it's helpful to start with how to recognize when you've been triggered or maybe when someone else is triggered. And I like to use a concept developed by Dan Siegel called the window of tolerance. So imagine a window and when you're within this window, you feel like you can deal with whatever is going on in your life. You might feel stress or pressure, but it doesn't really bother you all that much. Um, and this is the ideal place to be. 
However, when you move outside of your window of tolerance, you move into hyperarousal or what's called hypoarousal. With hyperarousal, it's feeling anxious. You may feel angry, out of control. In this state, your body wants to run away or fight. Um, And with hypoarousal, it's sort of like the opposite, that you feel spacey, zoned out, numb, frozen. Your body wants to shut down. Right. It is important to note, though, that with both hyperarousal and hypoarousal, these are states you don't choose to be in. The reactions just take over. And um, and so I think it's really important to be gentle with yourself when you move sure. into those states. Really being able to recognize them is the first step. What are the practical strategies for managing stress and maintaining just good mental health while dealing with all these pressures of the holiday. Sure. And I think practical is really important because we're already so stressed. So adding something in, you know, that you haven't done before can be really tough. I would say first is establishing realistic expectations. And this can mean looking at your calendar and not only considering if you have the space in your schedule, but if you have the bandwidth for that specific activity. And I'm sure listeners have heard before of the term people-pleasing. But if not, people-pleasing can prevent us from taking care of ourselves, mainly because it leads to making decisions on making other people happy rather than what we have the capacity for or our own needs. Can I follow up a little bit with that? So one of the issues that pops up in the concept of people-pleasing, a lot of times we're talking about our relatives. Yes. Uh, This is mom, dad, aunts. Yes. How... How do you how do you thread the needle of like taking care of yourself and you know you want to please them but you don't also want to lead to an argument Absolutely so I think the most important thing is being able to be direct about your needs and be honest. It can be very tempting to yes. avoid, right? And we can just hold back and then we either don't show up or we end up um, being more abrupt in our communication than we would have been if we would have just confronted it firsthand. So I think just being able to be honest with family members and recognizing that for for dealing with family members, there there might be an impact on them if you make a decision, let's say, like, not to go for a meal. Um, and that's right. okay. And, right. and they can have feelings about that. You can even hold space for those feelings. But allowing their feelings to determine decisions you make for yourself that may end up being detrimental, that can be problematic in the long run. Let me ask also one other, and again, this may be a little bit too more about me <laughs> than the listener, but maybe they'll relate to I'm it. I'm here for it. Okay, I appreciate it, Lindsay, because <laughs> I, I may need you here. I, I come from a very large uh, Cuban family. There's six siblings. Now there's husbands, wives, kids. Yes. Um, a lot of times when we all get together, we all seem to revert into... Um, uh, like almost like we were back in middle teenage years, and yet we are and very far from it. Uh, what if 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 someone's like you know almost itching for? I mean, sometimes it's it's always lovely and it's always great to see, sure. them, but but sometimes people want to itch to kind of get into uh, I don't know rehash something that happened 15, 17 years ago. Absolutely. Um, how do you how would someone navigate something like that sure i think the first thing the number one thing is check in with yourself are you in your window of tolerance right. are you about to come out of your window of tolerance you know, right. do you have the capacity to have that conversation and if you do not or if you feel like the holiday dinner right before that is not the right time being honest about that and then i would say communicating that it is important and you are very willing to follow up on it later just right now is not the time for that because you're about to engage in a holiday dinner whatever it might be i love that well i appreciate that too on a personal (laughs) note right there let me go to um um kind of a more serious um uh, point here sometimes um the holidays are falling at a time when someone has just passed away Mm -hmm. uh or end of a relationship, or, or something that's causing grief or loss. Um, how does how does the advice change in terms of helping folks that are are just difficult, you know, having difficulty coping uh, with the emotions, the mm-hmm. time, and just trying to find a a feeling of peace? Absolutely. I think the first thing that's really important is that. To not be afraid to talk about the loss, whether you're the person that has recently experienced the loss, or maybe it's not so recent, you know, the holidays, just because it's not the first holiday yeah. since the loss doesn't mean they get a lot easier. Um, and even if you're a person who is supporting someone who's just been through a loss, 
we can tend to feel like we need to avoid it, but being able to talk about it really creates space to feel feelings that need to be felt and released. Um, and that may seem a bit obvious, but when navigating grief with clients, that's one of the most common things that comes up as a barrier for them just being able to enjoy the holidays because they feel stuck in this grief. And it it causes them to maybe avoid situations or family gatherings or isolate more than usual because they don't want to put that burden on others or they feel like they're putting that burden on others. You mentioned, you know, when you're checking in, sometimes you have to set up um, boundaries, healthy boundaries. Yes. <laughs> Here I go back again with family the B and friends. Word. I mean, th- this is why they, they make all these great holiday <laughs> movies then, <laughs> because the, the, it's always these issues. Um, how, how can we set healthy boundaries and protect our, our well-being without being made to feel guilty when we checked in with ourselves and... Yes. And let's I I really don't want to do that dinner or I how, how, how can you do that? Such a such an important question because setting boundaries, I think, is is that's been a buzzword recently. Yes. So it's both misunderstood and also can bring up a lot of anxiety for folks. Um, so I would say the first thing is when you're preparing to set a boundary, you need to check in with what you need. If you don't actually have a clear idea of what you need, you're not going to be able to set a meaningful boundary. And I really like the way Prentice Hemphill put it, which is boundaries are the distance at which I can love you and me simultaneously. Oh, I like that. Me too. And the reason I really like it is because it highlights the fact that boundaries can actually make a relationship more healthy. It can strengthen a relationship. It's not, you know, a very hard line in the sand. It's a conversation. It's communication. Um, But I would say with that being said, sometimes family members and friends, they can engage in behaviors or maybe even say things that bring up a sense of guilt. Um, And if that is the case, I just want to remind folks that they have the right to decide how they spend their time, what they do with their bodies, what they are willing to discuss, etc. And as I mentioned earlier, it's not to say that those decisions won't have an impact on family members. It likely will. Um, It's about opening up that communication, being willing to listen, and again, not letting other people's needs dictate what you need, because in the end, that will really just cause you to not have the capacity to do the things that you want to do and and honestly lead to resentment. Yeah, that makes sense. One of the biggest issues uh, post-pandemic, we've covered this a lot on our show, is that there's clearly an epidemic of anxiety. Mm -hmm. Um, Given that the holiday season is, is, you know, it's all about gatherings Mm -hmm. and all that type of stuff, how do you what tips do you have to helping uh, folks who, who are just struggling um, to manage that social anxiety? Mm-hmm. And this is one of those times of years where it's like, you know, you're really the put, pressure's on. <laughs> yeah, you bet. Yes. I mean, how do you how do you do it given that this is so prevalent right mm-hmm. now? Well, I think the first thing you touched on a little bit earlier is checking in with yourself regarding your capacity and your actual desire to go to the event. And if you don't have the energy or if you flat out don't want to go, I think it's really important to honor that and decline the invitation. Um, And if you want to go, though, and you have anxiety, give yourself permission to leave early or even change your mind on the way there. And this might seem kind of simple or but I think folks will be surprised what power that has, because what it does is it prevents you from feeling all this pressure. It gives you choice that you can make and you're making a decision on the here and now instead of avoiding or escaping future anxiety that hasn't happened yet. Um, Grounding techniques are really, really helpful. And in the event that folks aren't familiar with grounding techniques, what those are is they're just ways to focus on the present feelings and sensations and help distract from anxiety or other distressing feelings. And I can share a few of those. A favorite of mine is to use an ice roller on my neck, face, and chest and Uh. really focus on the sensation of the coldness against my skin. It's a great way to bring you into the present moment. It doesn't take away the the stressors, right? What it does do is it helps ground you in the moment. And that's really really important with anxiety. Another example is diaphragmatic breathing. So when we're anxious, we tend to make shallow breaths in our chest Mm -hmm. as opposed to deep belly breaths. So even just making this simple shift can help folks get back into their window of tolerance if they've gone to hyperarousal or hypoarousal to circle back to what we talked about earlier. One of the other parts of the holidays, especially as we get uh, past Thanksgiving, is shopping. Mm-hmm. And 
debt and, oh, yeah. all, and all, the, all the stuff. So financial stress is a big concern. Uh, what advice do you have with regard to that? Because, I, I mean, even in, in route to the studio today, I, I mean, I was bombarded everywhere. with everything. And I have to admit, uh, I was like, God, do I do I want to buy that? I, like, you know, right. what what tips do you have in that situation? Yes, and you bring up a good point. It's not just budgeting um, gifts for other people around the holidays. It's when you see all these sales yes. and you're like, I need that now. Yes. <laughs> right? Yes. I think the first thing that's really important is actually, I'm not a financial advisor, so I don't okay, claim I to it. have a I scope in that. But having a budget is really important because that's data. It's data that you can look at. And having data prevents you from engaging and making decisions by emotional reasoning. And so if you folks don't know what emotional reasoning is. It's a cognitive distortion. It's commonly a term used in cognitive behavioral therapy. And it sounds just like what it is. It's that you're making decisions based on emotions rather than facts. And so Mm. an example for that might be a friend comes up to me and says, I can't wait to give you this holiday gift that I picked out just for you. And I'm slammed with guilt because (laughs) I did not buy them a gift, you know, and that guilt leads to a belief of being a bad friend. And then I buy a gift, even though I'm already feeling financial strain and pressure. And so if I were using not emotional reasoning, right? If I was just making a decision based on the data, what that would look like is probably having a pretty uncomfortable conversation or saying thank you to the gift and not giving it. And then that temporary discomfort, though, is is much better than the long-term distress of going into debt. One of uh, the other areas uh, that's uh, that I kind of, uh, we touched on when we we're talking about grief and folks um, that are struggling during the holidays, there's that other group of people that find themselves just lonely or isolated. Mm -hmm. Uh, They don't have the group or for whatever reason, they're just separated. What what can folks do who find themselves in that situation to kind of, to just find a way to combat the feeling of isolation and and find support? Of course, that's a really, really important question. I'm glad we're touching on it. So You'll see that this is pretty much a theme in what I'm saying, but first acknowledging the feeling. It's really important. We often disconnect automatically or we avoid those feelings. So really just allowing yourself to feel the feeling is important. Loneliness certainly isn't comfortable, but it is okay to feel it and you will survive it. Feelings come and go. Um, And you know, this isn't really the experience we see posted on social media or on TV. So it's tough. You can look at what you see on social media and TV and say, why What's why is it different for me? And internalize that as being alone. Um, and so I'd encourage folks to recognize that the evidence that they are not alone, even if they are currently feeling lonely, and reach out to people in their life to connect. Um, and if there's some discomfort around not having plans for the holidays, maybe there's estrangement from family. It can be helpful to join friends, start new traditions, and also if if that's not what you want to do, if you don't want to be around friends, just making a plan for that day, doing something that's very pleasurable for you can really help as a healthy distraction from those distressing feelings. Uh, what about um, issues with regards to alcohol and, mm-hmm. and overindulgence? Mm-hmm. Um, it's, I mean, it's everywhere. And... Um, how do you how how can people maintain a good balance with that? Sure. Mindfulness is a really good practice. And okay. so what mindfulness is being aware of what you're feeling in the present moment, why you're engaging in those behaviors in the present moment. Um, and it can really inform changes that we need or want. And I think also around the holidays, there can be a lot of focus on overindulgence and what it might be is indulgence, um, which is healthy and okay, right? (laughs) So give yourself permission to take pleasure in the things you enjoy. But as with anything, if you're using substances or food to the point of negative consequences or if it's unmanageable, it is probably time to take a deeper look. So for example, check in with your feelings when you're about to get that other drink. And if you're drinking to avoid numb feelings or avoid something, that's probably an indication to refrain. So grab a water, get hydrated instead, and really focus on confronting the feelings, the people, the activity, whatever it is that you're avoiding. And of course, if it's hard to do that, remembering that you can reach out to a professional for support and and to help you confront those difficult emotions. In our last moment, um, what words of wisdom or encouragement can you offer our listeners who may be struggling, the ones who need to get the advice uh, with their mental health, can what would you want to tell the folks out there that as they're listening to this on this holiday weekend, it's just 
it's not a good weekend. Right. Uh, and and what advice would you have? And, and, and then one extra caveat, when should someone seek help? Yes, yeah. So I think being gentle with yourself is really, really important and asking for the support you need. Sometimes in that those feelings of loneliness and isolation, it feels impossible to seek out support. And with that, because it is hard when you're in that space, I would encourage folks that maybe it isn't that hard of a time of year to reach out to your friends, check in with them as well. Um, but also there's just so much in the season that can be stressful folks deserve the relief that comes with not beating themselves up. They deserve to experience joy. So simplify where you can and focus on the meaning, meaningful connections in your life. Lindsay, uh, I just want to thank you so much for thank joining you. us. This has been a delight. This has been wonderful. I could spend literally uh, hours uh, and, and I just really appreciate this. I think you're going to help a lot of us out uh, of over this holiday. So. Yes, thank you. You bet. It, we've been talking to uh, Lindsay Bennett. Uh, she is a uh, licensed uh, social worker. She's a therapist. And she's been helping us navigate mental health during this very, very tricky holiday season. Well, that's our program for today. We hope you've enjoyed our show. If you missed anything, you can listen to the full episode at WJCT.org and on your favorite podcast app. Thanks to all of our guests. Our executive producer is David Luckin. Stacey Bennett is our producer. Brady Corum is our director. Next week's program is our monthly medical roundtable. If you have questions about this or any topic, let us know by calling us at 904-358-6362, email us at health at WJCT.org, or tweet me. At Jay Servan. I'm Dr. Joe Servan, and you're listening to What's Health Got to Do With It on WJCT News 899 Jacksonville. Thank you for listening. Have a fantastic holiday weekend and stay in touch. Scary ghost stories and tales of the glories of Christmases long, long ago. It's the most wonderful time of the year. There'll be much mistletoeing and hearts will be glowing when loved ones are near. It's the most wonderful time. Yes, the most wonderful time Sponsored in part by Eli Lilly and Company. Is migraine impacting your life or daily activities four or more days per month? If so, ask your healthcare professional if you are a candidate for migraine prevention treatments and which ones might be best for you. Learn more at thinkmigraine.com. The American Brain Foundation. For over 30 years, the foundation has worked with researchers to discover better treatment, prevention, and cures for brain diseases and disorders. Imagine life without brain disease. Learn more at AmericanBrainFoundation.com. And Rethreaded restores choice and breaks the cycle of generational trauma for survivors of human trafficking in Jacksonville, Florida through business. You can help. Learn more about Rethreaded survivor created goods at the storefront or rethreaded.com slash shop.